Last week we began our series on the book of First Timothy, and uh, we last week kind of did an overview, looking at some very significant topics that Paul is going to address in this book. And uh, also we looked at one of the sub-themes that runs throughout the book, and that is the theme of salvation. And so we got our feet wet in the book uh, last week by way of overview in that sense. But today we're going to begin our verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Timothy. And after much prayer, I have decided to begin this verse-by-verse study in verse 1 of chapter 1. Uh, And let me just begin by reading these two verses to you, uh, the introduction to this letter, because this is as far as we're going to get this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I want to start off this morning with an image that you'll see appearing on the screen uh, behind me. And most of you have seen this before, but the question that I would ask you is, what is this on the screen behind me? Just tell me. What? Did I hear? What did you say, Chris? All right. Um, I think uh, I heard some of you say a vase and others of you say uh, two faces. And actually, both of uh, those answers would be uh, correct. If what you're doing in your mind is you're seeing a black image uh, against a white uh, backdrop, then what you would see is a black vase. But if uh, your mental orientation is to see white images against a black background, then what you would be seeing is two faces that are looking at each other. And I thought of this particular optical illusion, if you want to call it that, as I was putting the message together for today on 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, because I want to begin by asking you the question, when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. When you look at this introduction to 1 Timothy, this preface, as it were, what do you see? Your answer might be, well, I, I know what I see. I mean, it's obvious this is an introduction, and uh, this is Paul introducing himself as the writer of the letter, and he's identifying Timothy as the recipient of the letter. So that's what I see. Well, that's actually uh, a good answer, but look harder. What do you see in these two verses? Let's change our orientation and look at these two verses in a different way. Let me give you some facts about these two verses. The name Paul is mentioned once. The name Timothy is mentioned once. God is mentioned twice. And Christ is mentioned three times. Suddenly now, on a second pass through these verses, we begin to realize that this introduction is not so much about Paul and about Timothy as it is about God the Father 
and about the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at these two verses again, we actually begin to see two faces appear. The faces not of Paul and Timothy so much as the faces of God the Father and Jesus Christ. And I think that is Paul's intent. Paul could have begun this letter by saying, my name is Paul, I'm writing to you, Timothy, here we go, and then got into the meat of the letter. He could have just done that, but instead he front loads this epistle and even puts his own name and Timothy's name just surrounded in explicit theological statements about God, the Father, and about the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, indicating that he really is burdened as he begins this letter to Timothy. He really wants Timothy to see certain things beyond just, hey, I'm Paul and I'm writing this letter. He wants Timothy to have a certain image of God burned into his brain as Timothy then begins to read for the first time this letter from verse 3 and onward. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want to go with Paul there. If you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would just simply be beholding our God. That's all we're going to do as we look at verse two. We're just going to stare at God. We're going to learn and and observe anything that these two verses teach us uh, about our great God. And ultimately, what we're going to find this morning is eight truths about God that are revealed and manifested in these two verses that God wants us to see. Now, as we begin our our series through 1 Timothy, here's what I want to say to you. If you want to get the most out of this book, then you have to linger over verses 1 and 2 and behold God first. This is what will prepare you, what will prepare Timothy to get the most out of what is said later in the book, we're going to learn a lot about how to be good citizens, how to behave towards our political leaders, how to deal with riches and, and, and money and how to take care of people in the church and elders and deacons and women's roles and in the church and modesty and dress and appearance and so forth. We're going to learn all this stuff in this book. But Paul says, you know, before we begin, let's just let's just gaze at God. That's what he wants us to do is to behold God as we begin uh, this morning, if you don't behold him here in verses one and two, first Timothy will not work for you. All right. So eight truths. Truth number one that Paul wants us to know about God as we begin our study of this book is that God is our savior. God is our savior. Look what he says in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our savior. Now, we saw last week that. This is not the only time God is described as Savior in this book. This is one of three times. Two other times in this book, God is described once again as our Savior. God, our Savior, God, our Savior, God, the Savior. That's what we find repeated throughout the book of 1 Timothy. Paul is beginning in the very first verse by saying, Timothy, I want you to see God and I want you to know something about God. And that is that he is our Savior. And it's evident by the fact that God repeats this through the book that God is not only the Savior, but he delights in his reputation as a Savior. This alerts us to what we have just been singing about, that we were sinners in need of salvation, could not save ourselves. uh, But God sent Christ into the world and Jesus died after living a perfect life and was smitten by God, bearing God's wrath upon himself so that after being raised from the dead, we could then believe in Jesus And we could have our sins forgiven and be saved. 
Now, to us who know the Lord, when God is described as our Savior, our heart leaps within us. We're like, yes, I know him as my Savior. But you know what? To many people in our world today, to describe God as Savior means nothing to them because they don't need a Savior. They don't even... What saving needs to be done? That's why Christ was rejected 2,000 years ago by the Jewish people because they, yeah, they wanted a Messiah to deliver them from the Romans, but they didn't need a Savior from this sin problem that Jesus was speaking about. And so to call God our Savior is to say something not just about Him, but about ourselves, that we need salvation. And those of us that have believed in Jesus and maybe were converted many years ago, God doesn't just want us to look back at that moment and say, yeah, He was my Savior ten years ago when I believed in Him. God wants us every single day to be looking to Him as our Savior, minute by minute, in every circumstance, in every temptation. Last week, uh, like about a week and a half ago, I had a dream that, and don't think I'm a hyper-spiritual guy, and I always, being a pastor, always have these dreams. And, um, because it, it, these things don't often happen in my dreams, but um, I was just being assaulted uh, with temptation in the midst of a dream, and I turned, and Jesus was standing there, and I looked to him, and I said, you are my Savior from this. And I believe in you to be my Savior from this sin. And in the dream, there was victory there. And I woke up the next morning and I was like, man, that was really cool. You know, it was a dream. I could have done anything I wanted. It would have been okay because it was just a dream. But I, I put my trust in Jesus to be my Savior in that moment of dreamed temptation. And then the thought hit me. I should do this when I'm awake. You know, not, not just when I'm asleep, but even when I'm awake, let's just look to Jesus every moment, every temptation and say, you didn't just save me years ago when I was converted. You are my savior today. You are my savior from this particular sin that is confronting me. God is our savior. And we saw last week that it ought to thrill us that God is the one who is our savior, given his power, his immensity. His love for us, a God who can do whatever He wants to do, He is the one who is our Savior. And that ought to make a difference for us. You know, imagine that you're walking down the street at night by yourself and three gangbangers approach you and surround you and you know, I'm, I'm toast. These guys um, are gonna, they're going to do me in. And, uh, and you know the situation is hopeless. But imagine, before anything happens, that I, pencil-neck geek that I am, walk up and say, don't fear, I'm here. Would that comfort you? <laughs> probably not, because you know that I probably would not be able to take these guys. However, imagine there's someone else that you know who's a former Navy SEAL. This guy is an absolute stud-fighting machine. You know his history. You know that this guy has um, been in many situations like this with even greater numbers of people he was fighting with. And this guy, with absolutely no problem, can take these guys down before they even know what's happened. Mike Berry. Okay. Um, and imagine that guy walks up and says the same words that I said and says, Don't fear. I'm here. I'll, I'll deliver you. Same words, but you think you'd probably be a little more comforted by what he says? Yeah, because you know something about him. 
And so, guys, as we get up in the morning and we face a day with many odds and temptations against us, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and a bad history behind us of of many failures, and we're like, man, I need a Savior today. Who's going to be my Savior today? God raises His hand and says, I'll be your Savior. I'm here, and I will save you. And let us be committed to living the kind of lives that you would expect someone's life to look like who has God as the Savior in their lives. God is our Savior. This is like the first theological truth that Paul wants to confront Timothy and all of us with. But there's another thing about God that we can observe in these verses, and that is that God is our Father. God is our Father. Look at verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. All right, what I love about this is that, um, you know, we all have human fathers, and even in the church we have father figures, right? Paul even describes Timothy as my true child in the faith, indicating that Paul was something of a father figure to Timothy. Later in 1 Timothy 5, I believe, he's going to tell Timothy to relate to older men in the church as father figures. Um, So there's a sense in which we have biological fathers, we have uh, spiritual fathers in the church, but Paul is saying to Timothy, let us never forget the fact that God is our Father. And let us never lose sight of Him as our Dad, as our Father. God obviously, as He's inspiring this, wants us to view Him not just as a Savior, but as a Father. He's saying, I want you to be like children towards me, and I want to be a father to you. I don't want to just be your Savior and then say, listen, you're saved, be happy with that, but don't try to get close to me. No, I want us to have a relationship. I want to be a dad to you. I want you to be children to me. Let us walk together and relate to one another as a father relates to his children and children relates to, relate to their father. And God, as we look at him, wants us to see in him the very best of what we see in the very best of earthly dads. Do you view God as a father? And if so, what kind of father do you see him as? Francis Chan, um, who's a pastor of a church in Simi Valley, uh, wrote a book recently entitled Crazy Love. It's really an excellent uh, book. But in this book, he just shares a little bit about his own view of God as his father. It's a lengthy quote, but let me read it to you. I think you'll be blessed by it. You might even find yourself in this. He says, the concept of being wanted by a father was foreign to me. Growing up, I felt unwanted by my dad. My mother died giving birth to me, so maybe he saw me as the cause of her death. I'm not sure. I never carried on a meaningful conversation with my dad. In fact, the only affection I remember came when I was nine years old. He put his arm around me for about 30 seconds while we were on our way to my stepmother's funeral. Besides that, the only other physical touch I experienced were the beatings I received when I disobeyed or bothered him. My goal in our relationship was not to annoy my father. I would walk around the house trying not to upset him. He died when I was 12. I cried, but also felt relief. The impact of this relationship affected me for years, and I think a lot of those emotions transferred to my relationship with God. For example, I tried hard not to annoy God with my sin or upset Him with my little problems. I had no aspiration of being wanted by God. I was just happy not to be hated or hurt 
by him. Sometimes, or he goes on to say, thankfully, my relationship with God took a major turn when I became a father myself. After my oldest daughter was born, I began to see how wrong I was in my thinking about God. For the first time, I got a taste of what I believe God feels toward us. I thought about my daughter often. I prayed for her while she slept at night. I showed her picture to anyone who would look. I wanted to give her the world. Sometimes when I come home from work, my little girl greets me by running out to the driveway and jumping into my arms before I can even get out of the car. As you can imagine, arriving home has become one of my favorite moments of the day. My own love and desire for my kids' love is so strong that it opened my eyes to how much God desires and loves us. My daughter's expression of love for me and her desire to be with me is the most amazing thing. Nothing compares to being truly, exuberantly wanted by your children. Through this experience, I came to understand that my desire for my children is only a faint echo of God's great love for me. I am just an earthly, sinful father, and I love my kids so much it hurts. How could I not trust a heavenly, perfect father who loves me infinitely more than I will ever love my kids? He discovered his heavenly father just in looking at the faint echo of the Father's love that was in his own heart for his children. And Jesus even teaches us this in the Gospels, does he not? He says to dads, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father be this way? He tells us the story of the prodigal son so that we could see our heavenly Father more clearly to teach us that even when we sin and we decide to come back to the Lord, that on our way back to the Lord, He runs to us as it were and He is repeatedly hugging and kissing us even before we get the words of our confession out of our mouths. Jesus is saying, this is your Father. And so when you see God, yes, he is savior. Yes, he is king. But your father is also your dad. He wants a relationship with you day by day. He being a father to you and you being a child to him. And not only we learn this from the book of Galatians, not only does God want to be your father, but he wants to blow you away with the kind of father that he is to where you're left exclaiming, Abba which in the Bible is always an exclamation, either an exclamation of great need or an exclamation of joy or excitement. There's virtually always an exclamation point after the expression Abba. And God is bent. When you get up tomorrow morning, God is determined that I will be the kind of dad to this child of mine in such a way to where when they reach the end of the day, they will look back and say, what a father you are. What a father you are to me. Turns out, we see here God is not just our Savior. He wants a relationship. He wants to be our dad. And He wants us to see Him that way. To enjoy being loved by Him. To love Him in return. To walk in relationship with Him as our Heavenly Father. Paul opens the curtains on God and we see Him. He's our Savior. He is our Father There's something else about him that we see in these verses. And now we're speaking of the second member of the Trinity, and that is Christ. We learn here that Christ is our Lord. He's our Lord. 
He says in verse 2, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, for Christ to be our Lord, what that means is He's essentially our Master. He's the one who calls the shots. We are His subjects. We are um, His slaves, as it were. Yes, we are His friends. Yes, Jesus is our brother and we have a relationship with Him. All of those other biblical images of Christ are absolutely true and we affirm those things. But in addition to everything else the Bible teaches about Christ, the Bible teaches us that Christ is our Lord, meaning He is our Master and He calls the shots. That means when we get up in the day, it's not about what we want to do. It's what does Jesus want me to do? When someone wrongs us in a certain situation, the issue is not what do I want to do in responding to this, but it's what Jesus wants me to do. He is our Lord. I think Paul reminds Timothy and all of us of this before we get into the book, because there's going to be some stuff in this book that's not going to be easy to hear. We're going to learn about how we need to behave as good citizens, even during this, this politically hot season where there's a lot of wrangling and accusations and hysterics going back and forth on, uh, on both sides and, and people rooting for one candidate or the other. There's a lot of vitriol, and I think that's going to only increase as the weeks uh, roll on here leading to November. But what, what is... You know, this book's going to teach us how to how to live during this time and how we can bless our governing uh, leaders. And some of what we're going to learn may go against your party's platform. It just may. But you just need to ask, who's my Lord? Is it the chairman of the Republican National Committee? Is that my Lord or the the leader of the Democratic Party? Who is my Lord? My Lord is Jesus. And so he's the one who tells me what to do. And if it contradicts a party platform, then I'm going to follow him. We're going to learn in this book some things about the roles of women in the church that I can guarantee you absolutely offend the sensibilities of feminist leaders in our society today. May even offend you. But again, you just need to settle before we get into this book. Who's my Lord? All right. Is it Oprah? Is it um, feminist leaders? Is it the uh, prevailing conventional wisdom of the world of this day? Or is it Jesus? And if it's Jesus, then let's hear what he has to say and let's obey what he has to say. Ladies, you're going to be learning things in this book about modesty. Modest, modesty in dress and appearance and demeanor. And what is taught here is just... I guarantee you that uh, J.C. Penney and uh, Nordstrom's, they don't consult First Timothy when they're putting together their fashions for the spring, for example. They just don't. Uh, but we just need to settle who is the Lord here. And you know what, Jesus, I'm surprised you want to talk to me about my dress. But, but if you want to talk about my dress and my appearance, then you're the Lord. And so I want to hear what you have to say and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Because you're the Lord, not me. Paul wants us to know right up front, Jesus is the Lord. Let's get this settled. If you don't go into this book with the assumption that Christ is your Lord, this book is not going to work for you. I would encourage you to attend other churches, uh, but not this until we're done with First Timothy. It'll be a difficult book. Uh, but, you know, one other thing I think we need to keep in mind is that when Christ is described as Lord, 
He's not just our Lord, he is the Lord. And we can be very blessed to know that our Lord is the Lord. It's not like, yeah, Christ is my Lord, but he's some lesser Lord on the totem pole. And there's other lords and principalities and powers that are stronger than he, more authority than he, that can overrule, you know, whatever he might want. But he's my Lord and I'm happy to have him as my master. No, it just so happens that the one we point to as our Lord is the Lord of the entire universe. So there is no higher authority. If Jesus renders a verdict on our life, which he has, that we're innocent and forgiven, there is no higher authority in all of the universe and heaven and on earth that can overturn his decision regarding us. And if Jesus loves us and he wants to carry out the fullness of his desire of his love for us, there is no one who can stop him or stay his hand and say, oh, you may not have known this, but you can't do that. For this person, there's been a higher authority that's made a decision that you're not allowed to do this. I am so glad that when we look at Jesus, our Lord is the Lord, not some lesser Lord who says, I just want you to know I love you so much. I love you, but I just can't. I can't do the fullness of my desire towards you because there's higher authorities that are telling me no. And, and I'm frustrated, but just know that I love you. Okay. And I would do more if I could. That's not our Lord. Our Lord is the Lord. He can do whatever he wants with us. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing, neither height nor depth, principality, power, things present, things to come. Nothing can separate us from Jesus. And there's only one reason why that's true. Because he, our Lord, is the Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him to carry out the fullness of his desire for us. Let's settle this one. And then look to another truth. Truth number four we can draw out of these verses is that Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. Paul says at the end of verse one, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. And in calling Jesus our hope, what he's saying primarily is Jesus is what we hope for. All right. He's the one we hope for. He's the one we long for. Uh, And so he is the satisfaction of our desire. He's the one we hope for. We want him, not as a means to some greater end, but we want Jesus and we put our hope in him. We want him and to know him more than anything or anyone else in this world. But also he's the one in whom we put our hope. All the things that are promised to us. In the word of God, deliverance from sin's guilt, deliverance from sin's power, and ultimately deliverance from um, the presence of sin in our members and to be with God forever in heaven. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard that God has prepared for us in glory. Jesus is the one we put our hope in for all of that. He is our only hope, but what a hope he is. He is the one in whom we trust that makes all of this happen. And so we place our hope in him. As I ponder this this week, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to say this to this congregation. I know that most people out here today, including me, would go, yeah, I know this. I know Jesus is our hope. We sing that. We sang it this morning. Of course, Jesus is our hope. We believe this. But is Jesus really our hope? Um, because so often we tend to allow ourselves to put hope in many other things without even consciously deciding. We don't even come to a point where we say, I am withdrawing my hope from Jesus and I'm now going to put my hope in this over here. We don't even decide that. We just 
catch ourselves doing that. And some of us in this room are in a place where, no doubt, we're not putting our full hope in Christ. We have our hope elsewhere. Uh, Let me ask you some questions. Uh, You're married. If your basic attitude is, I'm waiting for my spouse to change. I want a good marriage, and I am waiting for my spouse to change. And if my spouse changes, I think I can be everything I'm supposed to be in my marriage. If, if that's basically your thinking, you're putting your hope in your spouse. Your spouse needs to be a certain way in order for you to be a certain way. There are husbands and wives that ultimately put their hope in the other and expect the other to live up to a certain standard before they feel like they themselves can actually be the spouse that they should be. Uh, there are people in our society today, and maybe all of us to one degree or another uh, have done this, who put their hope in riches. You say, well, I don't put my hope in riches. My hope is in God. Did you experience any anxiety this week with what happened on Wall Street? Did, I, I found some of that emerging in my own heart. And when that anxiety emerges, it just indicates I've got some tentacles of hope in places where it should not be. My hope should be in Jesus. If you get up in the morning and just don't even open the Bible, don't even commune with God, and just kind of get up and go throughout your day, uh, I know one thing. I know that your hope is not in Christ. Your hope is in yourself and in your own wisdom and in your own strength. So let's be honest about this. We can confess with our mouths that Jesus is our hope, but let us be honest and really inquire as to whether, practically speaking, Christ is indeed our hope. Um, there's, Paul is going to be talking about hope later in this book. Three other times it's going to come up, so we're going to see this theme as we work our way through this book. But we need to hasten on here. There is a fifth truth about God that we observe in these verses, and that is that from God we get grace. From God we get grace. You might say, man, it's great that Christ is, uh, you know, uh, our hope. He's the Savior. God is our Father. And all these things about God towards His people. But Pastor Milton, I don't deserve these things from God. God would answer, I know you don't deserve them, but to the praise of the glory of my grace, I am lavishing these things and giving myself to you anyway, because from God we get grace. Look what he says in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, every time we see the word grace here at Cornerstone, we always take the time to define it. Grace is ill-deserved favor from God. You say, yeah, I know that. It's undeserved favor. No, it's not undeserved favor. It's ill-deserved favor. It is favor from God that not only have we failed to deserve and earn, but it's favor from God that is given in spite of the fact that we've earned the opposite of that favor. That's what we mean by ill-deserved favor. And everything, all of the favor God gives to us in Christ, all of the blessings He lavishes upon us in Christ as a manifestation of that favor, you can draw a circle around the full volume of all of that and you can call it grace. And guys, everything that we have in our life, every good and pleasant thing, every sunrise that we're able to enjoy, every uh, pocket of air that we're able to breathe in, all of it is grace. 
And it is all from God. And we should receive it as a gracious, undeserved gift from Him. We need to think this way every day and realize that this grace comes from God. And our attitude needs to be that of the Apostle Paul. You know, sometimes we get to thinking that, you know, here's the blessings that are given to us in Christ, and, you know, but I don't deserve them, and so we dare not fully enjoy them. You ever found yourself there? In fact, back in 2001, I was talking to a man in our church who had known the Lord for nine years, and I was talking to him about intimacy with Jesus, just walking in an intimate relationship with him. And I asked this guy, as I described it, I said, are you enjoying intimacy with Jesus? This guy who had been saved for nine years answered with these words. He said, oh, Milton, you have no idea what I did before I was saved and the sins I committed. That was his answer. In other words, he was content to just be forgiven That was good enough for him. But intimacy, friendship with Jesus, I don't don't deserve that. And how many blessings are given to us in Christ that we fail to enjoy because we feel undeserving of them? God would say, get over it. You're undeserving of all of it, even on your best day, but it's yours. I am giving it to you actually to show off my grace. As I give you this ill-deserved favor, our attitude needs to be that of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's like, you know what? I don't deserve to be an apostle. I am the least of the apostles. Don't deserve to be an apostle because I used to persecute the church of God and this is the stuff I used to do. But I am an apostle. I don't deserve God's grace, but I got His grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am and I'm going to be who God has called me to be. And I'm not going to let his grace prove vain in me. And we need to look at all of the blessings that God gives to us in Christ. And as we read through books like Ephesians and and whatever to read them and go, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. But I got it. And I am not going to let God's grace prove vain in me. I'm going to take this and enjoy it to the fullest And my undeservingness actually will only magnify his grace all the more as I enjoy what He has given to me that I do not deserve. From God, we get grace. This is the kind of God He is. At the beginning of this letter, God is wanting you to know, before we get into this letter, when you believe in in my Son, what you get from me all the time, every day, good days, bad days, highs and lows, is grace. No wrath, just grace. Not only do we get grace from God, but a sixth truth we observe about God in these verses is that from God we get mercy. From God we get mercy, which means compassionate ministry to a person in desperate need. Now, commentators struggle a little bit with the fact that Paul says grace, mercy, and peace. Uh, Because in many of Paul's letters, he will say grace and peace. But it's unusual for him to say mercy And because mercy kind of implies a little bit of a criticism. What he's saying to Timothy is mercy be upon you from God. In other words, this isn't just revealing something about God. It's revealing something about Timothy. And that is, Timothy, you are desperately needy, desperately needy. But from God, you're going to get compassionate ministry to address your great and desperate needs. 
Not only do we need His mercy because of our desperate situation with sin, and so every day we stand in need of His help to, uh, to give us victory over, uh, over sin, and so all of God's help and deliverance that He provides could be called mercy ministry. But also, when we as believers find ourselves in impossible situations that leave us in desperate need. And there are people in our church family that are, are really hurting right now. Some have lost jobs and some are going through financial hardship and they, they can't even begin to see their way clear out of those difficulties. Some have lost loved ones uh, in, in recent weeks and months. Others are providing care for loved ones that that are physically not doing very well. And I mean, the truth be told, all of us are, are desperately needy. And from God, we get mercy. That's not just a nice feeling where God says, I just want you to know that as I look upon you, I have a merciful feeling that I'm feeling right now about you. That's not what he's talking about. Mercy is active, tangible, real, compassionate ministry to address desperate needs that are in our lives. So let us go to God and look to Him as the one from whom mercy descends day by day. There's a seventh truth about God that we can observe in these verses, and that is from God we get peace. From God we get peace. And the idea of peace, look what he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This word peace uh, means favor versus hostility. So God does not uh, have an ounce of wrath in his being against us anymore. All he gives to us is favor. Um, and then also the word peace has the idea of tranquility as opposed to turmoil. So as believers, regardless of our circumstances and what's going on around us, we can enjoy the peace of God because he's given us that tranquility. And guys, please understand what Paul is saying. Grace, mercy, and peace from God. Genuine peace comes from only one place, and that is from God and from his son, Jesus Christ. A lot of times when we lack peace, we try to handle things on our own, fix things on our own. What we often end up doing is just creating more anxieties when we do that. I know that's my story I could tell you stories how I've had anxiety problems and I've tried to solve those and I just gave myself hundreds of more things to worry about. Even in recent years, I've been guilty of this. And we just we try to address our problems like I'm feeling agitated and anxious, so I'll do these things and that'll solve my anxiety problem. And we're basically looking to ourselves and our own ingenuity rather than looking to God. Um, go to God for this peace. He is the source of it. I was watching a part of the last eight minutes of an infomercial yesterday, um, which I do every Saturday. Um, I'm kidding. Um, but I was watching this infomercial, and basically what they were selling, they were, they were selling peace of mind. Do you want peace of mind? Do you want security? Do you want to eliminate your worries and worries about the future? then order this CD and sign up for this seminar coming to Los Angeles where you can learn about investing in the stock market. And I'm like, how could they do this after the way this past week has been? You know, anyone heavily invested in the stock market has not been walking around this week saying, man, it just brings me such peace and tranquility. 
It only comes from God. You know what? Though the stock market goes up and down, up and down, scary highs and lows, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's just a flat line every day. Open up your portfolio and it's the same every day. It never fluctuates in its value. Open Ephesians and read your portfolio and enjoy the fact that it is stable. It will endure forever and it never fluctuates in value. This is where peace of mind comes from. The word peace has the idea of prosperity versus poverty. Talking about spiritual prosperity and wholeness. Spiritual wholeness versus uh, spiritual weakness or even spiritual sickness. Man, do you want to be walking in favor, tranquility, spiritual prosperity, spiritual wealth and spiritual health? Let me tell you something. It comes from God and from Christ Jesus, our Lord. Look to Him. Walk in relationship with Him. There's one more truth about God that we'll look at real quickly. This is going to sound weird to you guys, this point, but I couldn't think of any other way to word it. And, uh, but I actually like this point, so even if you don't like it, know that I like it. Um, and I'm the preacher, so I get to make the points that I want to make. Um, but an eighth truth about God that we observe in this passage is that by the command of God, we get the Apostle Paul. Now, I know that most of you didn't wake up this morning and say, Lord... First thing I want to say to you is thank you for the Apostle Paul. Um, I, I know we don't think about that, but look at what Paul says in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Paul is like, you know what? Um, I am an apostle by the command of God. God commanded me. Jesus Christ commanded me to be an apostle. It wasn't the career choice that I was intending to make. In fact, I was on my way to Damascus to beat up on some Christians and to have them thrown into prison. But Jesus appeared to me and uh, he didn't ask, what do you want to do with your life? He told me what I was going to do with my life and told me that I was going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's most of us in this room today. And the reason that God commanded Paul to be an apostle is because God loves you and me and he wanted us to receive the benefits of salvation through Jesus and he wanted us to understand the full scope of what was accomplished through Christ so that we would be brought in to these blessings that are in Jesus. Think about the letters Paul wrote in the New Testament. Think about your favorite passages of Scripture that have blessed you the most. Are not many of them written by the hand, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the hand of Paul? Where would we be without Paul? Yeah, we would understand that Christ died, and I think we would understand uh, some significant things, but man, when Paul came along and with the illumination God gave him, he totally blew the top off of this gospel thing and laid it open in a way that no other writer of Scripture ever did. And God was like, man, I have accomplished something really great here. Paul, I command you to be an apostle, to be an apostle to the Gentiles so that you can explain to them and lay out for them their spiritual portfolio in Jesus so they can be brought into this and know what I've done here and to know that it is for them also. Maybe tomorrow morning we should get up and say, Lord, thank You for the gift of the Apostle Paul. Thank You for commanding him. 
Thank you for not asking him whether he wanted to do this or not. Thank you for commanding him into this ministry so that we could know the things that we know throughout his writings and receive the instruction and wisdom that we receive in a book such as 1 Timothy. We have much to learn as we study through 1 Timothy, but Paul begins by saying, let's just take some time to stare and behold our God. Let us enjoy what we see. Let this image burn into our hearts. And now with that image burned into our hearts, let's begin in verse 3 and let's just work our way through this book and get the most of what God has for us in this book. I want to ask you to bow your heads. We're going to be taking up an offering here in just a minute. And um, there's a comment card in your bulletin, and I would encourage you to fill that out. Um, Let us know how we can minister to your needs, how we can pray for you. And I would encourage you to give in the offering as the Lord leads. It's an incredible privilege to give to a God like this who's given himself to us. And some are going through financial hard times and there's a lot of uncertainty even in the economy. But you know what? God says, put your hope in me. Give like a person would give who puts his hope in me. And relish the privilege of giving to a God such as he is. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for you. We thank you for verses like this that just pull the curtains back and give us a glimpse of you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep these truths fresh in our minds, that they would even be in our eyes as we go throughout the days of this week, that we would live as if you are our Savior, as if you are our hope, as if you are our Lord as if you are the one from whom we get grace every day and mercy every day and peace every day. And may our lives be such that demonstrates these truths about you. As we give these offerings to you, Lord, we do so with thankful hearts. Ask that you receive them as a loving father receiving expressions of love from your children. Bless and multiply what's given so that your name, your fame could be spread. We give ourselves to you also, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.